wife. He is uh, one of my former professors at Fruitland and presently Tom's professor. So Tom, you better be good and say amen loud. So Scott's right behind you. But uh, Scott serves as the vice president of Fruitland Bible College. It's a blessing to have you guys here. This time, let us pray and turn our attention towards God and his word. Father, we thank you for the ability to laugh and to celebrate what you're doing in this church. Lord, I pray as we look into your word that we realize we see the world as we are. So, Father, help us to see the world as Jesus sees the world. Give us new vision and new insight. And we pray you bless the reading of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to be in Luke's Gospel, chapter number 6. Inside your bulletin, there's a listening guide if you want to take that out. Just a little review. The past few weeks, we've been talking about the Sermon on the Plain and how Jesus begins with saying, Blessed are the poor now. Blessed are the hungry now. Um, Blessed when someone slaps you on the cheek and you turn the other cheek. And he starts off with radically different sayings that really causes us to sit and think of how we're doing. And the ultimate summary of the former weeks is the world is very reactive and the Christ follower is very proactive. In other words, if you treat me good, I'm going to react and treat you the same. If you treat me bad, watch out. But Christianity teaches us to be proactive because God is good, we can treat others with goodness. Because God is full of grace, we can be graceful people. Amen. At the age of 45, Michael May miraculously discovered his sight. And this was uh, the year before Y2K. They had this surgery that if it was successful, um, you could gain sight again. And here's a picture of Michael May. He was blind from the age of three on. So for 42 years, he had lived as a blind man. And you can imagine after they took the, the bandages off of his eyes, how he could see the world, color and motion. And as this experience transpired, there was a feeling of euphoria. Up before the surgery in 99, there was only 40 cases of people who had been born blind or was blind at some point. They they had received their sight through medical procedures. So he was one of the 40. And all of them said that they experienced the same euphoric feelings that Michael experienced. But then something tragically happened after that. It was a sense of discouragement because you can imagine not seeing and all of a sudden you're seeing and you can't really understand depth or width or breadth or 3D motions and they have a hard time detecting even gender and objects moving. They're just learning how to see in a whole new world. So there was discouragement. But Michael May was different. He said, you know, it's a learning experience and I'm in a totally new world. So one of his favorite things to do was ride in the elevator up and down like a little kid. And whenever he would go into the lobby, he would ask his wife, you know, what is this? And he was so fascinated. But something that really struck me about Michael May's story is after his surgery, the adjustment period. And he basically said that there's an adjustment period from going from not seeing to seeing. And there's some frustration in the midst of that period. I think there's a spiritual parallel Whenever you're walking in darkness, Ephesians 2 says that we were dead and we were walking in darkness. But whenever God turned on the light and we could see, for many of us, there's this period of frustration where we still long for this, even though we know know it's not good. And the light is is so different. It's so countercultural. And there's an adjustment period. The Bible calls this sanctification. It's us becoming more like Christ. It's us learning how to walk in the light. 
So today we're going to ask a very important question, and it's the question about your vision. Not your physical sight, but your spiritual sight. So today's big question I want to ask and I want us to answer is, how do you see the world around you? How do you see it? So we're going to look in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 37. If you have your listening guide, you can follow along with us. By the way, verse 37 is one of the most quoted verses by people who don't go to church. Let's see if you guys know it. Judge not, and you'll be not judged. How many of you ever heard someone say that? The Bible says not to judge. We're going to talk about what, what Luke meant when Jesus said that. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put back into your bosom or to your lap. For the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. But why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, hey brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the plank that is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. May God bless his word. So today, I'm going to ask you five heart-probing questions. And just a little warning, some of these questions will probably step on your heart or your toes. And that's okay. But that's, that's the way Jesus wants us to look at our heart. Where are we at? Are we where we need to be? And as I told the 930 service, every time I go through the scripture, I have to preach it first to myself and ask God to forgive me and help me. So... I'm a person in equal need of grace as yourself. So that being said, the first question, do you see the best or the worst in others? So when it comes to how you view the world, do you see the best or the worst? Look at verse 37 again. Judge not and you shall not be judged. How many of you have someone's ever quoted that scripture to you? Don't judge. What does that really mean? Does that mean we can't? Tell someone they're doing wrong? Does that mean we can't confront someone? Does that mean we just let people run over us and we say nothing about it? That's a good question to think about. Here's what I think it doesn't mean. I don't think it means that we can't call sin for what it is. It's it's sin, right? But what does it mean? And we're gonna we're gonna unpack that during the whole message. What does that mean? Uh, one one little fault is there's someone who hardly ever judges you, who loves you just the way you're, you are, and it's a person in your family. And who is that in your family? Your mom. This is a picture of my mom. You may not be able to see it, but she's teaching Kira how to bake homemade biscuits. And there's the thing about moms. Um, for those of you who are mothers, you'll understand, even when all the world sees your problems, your mom can look past that. And why is that? Why do moms see the best in you while others see the reality that you're going through. That's a tough thing. I wrote down a few thoughts. The first one is she has a lot invested in you. I mean, think about being nine months in her womb. I mean, that's a lot. I think about Lori, all four of her pregnancies, the prenatal vitamins. You change the way you eat. Well, you can't have raw sushi. There's certain things you have to go without. And that was hard, you know, certain things that she, you know, a lot invested 
She has experienced the pain of life with you. And it started when she gave birth to you, the birth pains. And do you know that some of us have been a pain ever since? (laughs) Just being honest. Um, She has the ability to look past your problems and into your potential. But there's something else I haven't thought about until recently. She can look at your best because you share her DNA. You are part of her. So whenever you get mad at Johnny or Sally, you're getting mad at Mama because you carry around your mom's DNA. Have you ever thought about that? You guys see where I'm going with this. God, as a Christian, as a Christ follower, he has the ability to look past what's going on into your future. Yes, he sees the issues. Yes, he convicts you. But just like God, the Bible says there's no condemnation in Christ. Well, how is that? Because Jesus took on the cross everything you and I deserved. Does God see it? Yes. But guess what? Your, your debt has been canceled. And God experiences the pain with you. Do you ever think about that? When you suffer, God suffers and he experiences the pain. You're like, well, how is that possible? Look no further than the cross of Christ. All the suffering of humanity was placed on the cross. And when it says Jesus wept, it shows you the heart and compassion of of the Son of God and God the Father. And, you know, something else that's kind of mind-boggling as a Christian, we talked about you sharing your mom and your parents' DNA, Whenever you become a Christian, what happens to you? Who moves inside of you? The person of the Holy Spirit, right? So that's why Peter says we're partakers of the divine nature. Yeah, you don't become God, but you share in the divine nature because God lives inside of you. So whenever God looks at you, he sees you, but he sees beyond you. He sees the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? So when the Bible says judge not and you'll be not judged, well, what does that mean? I think one thing it means is we're not critical, fault-finding people because we know we too are in need of grace and forgiveness. So judge not. Is it ever right to judge someone? Is it ever right to call somebody out? I think one of Aesop's fables will help us. Does anybody remember Aesop's fables in school? There was a certain story about a hungry lion, and he was the king of the jungle, and he would devour everything in sight. But as time goes on, the hungry lion became an old hungry lion, and he could no longer hunt or use his prowess to hunt his prey. So what did he do? He would lay inside of his cave, and he made known to all of the other animals that he was sick. So one by one, in order to pay the respect to the king of the jungle, they'd come into the cave, and there would be footprints leading up to the cave. But guess what? There were no footprints leaving the cave. So one by one, the hungry lion would eat all of the animals. But there was a fox that was very sly and cunning. And the fox noticed the footprints going in, but no footprints coming out. So he stood on the outside of the cave and gave his respect. I'm so sorry you're hungry. I'm so sorry you're sick. I hope you're okay. And the hungry lion said, why don't you come in so I can hear you? See, I'm losing my hearing also. And the sly fox said, I would love to come in. But I notice footprints going in, but no footprints going out. I will simply give you well wishes from the outside of the cave. Now, was the fox judging or was he discerning? He was discerning. There is a difference between seeing reality and being critical. And I think as we unpack this text, it will make a difference as we look through it. So you see the world as you are. If you are a loving person, how will you see the world? 
through a loving lens, right? If you are a critical, judgmental person, how will you see everybody else? How you see the world says more about you than the world itself. Because as you see the world, so you are. The second question we've got to ask ourselves is not just do we see the best or worse in others. Are we loving or harsh towards others? Are we loving or harsh towards others? Later on in verse 37, it says, Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Someone once wrote, Why is it that my dirt is never as dirty as your dirt from my perspective? Why does your sin always seem worse than my sin? So I think where Jesus was getting at in the Sermon on the Plain, there's nothing wrong with being a fruit inspector. But there is something wrong about not self-examining yourself before you try to examine others. So do you swim in the creek of condemnation or the river of redemption? If you are a Christian, you should swim in the river of redemption. You have been forgiven and set free. As Augustine once prayed, O Lord, deliver me from this lust of always vindicating myself. I think that's a good prayer. O Lord, deliver me from this lust of always vindicating myself. Those who have been forgiven should forgive greatly. Look in your listening guide at Luke 7:47, parallel passage about forgiveness. Jesus says, I tell you, her sins, though they're many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. And the question I want to ask you today is, how much has God forgiven you? Has he forgiven you greatly? Or has he forgiven you little? And obviously the answer should be he's forgiven us greatly. Imagine if you just committed one sin every day for 70 years. That's a lot of, that's a lot of sin. And to get to heaven, you have to be perfect. Just one sin would keep you out. And they were like, oh, well, how is that possible? Well, that's why Jesus came. And he died the death so that we could have his life transferred to our life. Forgiveness. Amen. So let the forgiven be forgivers. Let the loved become lovers. So in the church, and I want to speak to this church specifically, and this is something we're known as, which is great, but let it continue. When I ask people, what do you think about Arden First? They say it's such a loving community. And that's, that's a huge praise the Lord on your part. But let us keep that. Let us continue to, as we see people, we see them as they are, but we're also willing to look at ourselves and examine ourselves before we take the, the speck out of someone else's eye. Someone said, ouch or amen, right? The third heart-probing question, like I said, each of these questions are like, ouch, Lord, help me. Do people see you as generous or as stingy? When people look at you, and this is not from your perspective, this is from other people's perspective. Uh, When it comes to giving gifts, and I'm not saying you give beyond what you're able to people, but are you viewed as a generous person or stingy person? Look at the next verse. Give, and it'll be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your lap. For the same measure that you use, it'll be measured back to you. Friends, there are three types of people in the world. Let's see if you know them. They're givers, takers, and fakers. The faker wants to give in order to appear generous. Their goal is for you to realize, I'm generous, when in their heart, they're not really truly generous. You remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? 
I believe it was around Acts 5, somewhere in there, where they were pretending to be generous, and then they faked it. And you guys know the rest of the story. It didn't turn out too well for them. So those are the fakers. The takers, their mentality is, is kind of twofold. Either there's only enough stuff for me, and if I give, I'm not going to get enough stuff back, or I don't have anything valuable to give. You ever heard anyone? I just don't have anything to contribute. And here's what, what that, the, the taker is missing. God gives us each our own daily bread. So I can give not because I am the resource of giving. It's because I know who the source of all giving is. And who is that? It's God, right? The Lord Jesus Christ. So when it comes to giving, I can have two mindsets. I can have the mindset of the poverty mindset, meaning there's only one pizza and you have to fight for your slice of the pie. And I don't want you taking my slice. Or I can have the blessed mentality, meaning... God gives us each our own daily bread. And your bread may be bigger than mine, that's okay. We may have different breads, different types of gifts. But listen, I'm going to invest and use what God has given me for his glory. So my prayer is none of us are fakers or takers, but we're givers. So let's look at verse 38. It says, give and it shall be given to you. Now notice the four descriptions it says. Good measure, pressed down shaken together and running over. And you're like, what is that talking about? Has anybody ever been to like a marketplace, even like Smiley's Flea Market, where they're selling grain, and you get a scoop of grain into a bucket. And the thing about grain is you can fill it up and it looks full, but if you shake it, it the grain will settle and go down. And in this day and time, in this culture, what, what's, what's pretty cool is in the marketplace, if it was a generous store owner or generous merchant, if he wanted to bless you that day, Instead of just filling up your, your bucket or whatever container you had, he would shake it, and then he could pour more. If he was really generous, he wouldn't just shake it, but he would take his hand and press down the grains to compact it even more. And if he was really, really generous, he wouldn't just shake it for more and press it down, but he would fill it up again. And then if he was really generous, he would fill it to overflow into your lap. My wife just bought one of these uh, kitchen aprons. I wish I had a picture of it. And Kira actually got one recently. And the cool thing about kitchen, any of you ladies have kitchen aprons that have the pockets in the front? And that's kind of cool because in the Palestinian culture, I understand some of the garments would have like a little pouch towards the front. So the imagery is God, if you're a generous person who gives for the right reasons, the right motives, to the right causes, when God leads you, it's all spirit-led giving. He's not just going to bless you. It's going to be pressed down, shaken together, running over, and it's going to pour into your pockets so that you can continue to bless others. Is that a generous God or what? So in your listening guide, I have some application points. Well, why should we be generous? I know the Bible says to be generous, but why? Uh, The first reason to be generous is God has called us to be generous. Notice it says give. There is no, like, think about it, maybe give. Listen, God wants us to realize that because we love others, we give. I love what Rick Warren says. He says, you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. You can give without loving, but it's impossible to love without giving. It's as simple as John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave. When you love, you want to give. The second application point is you can't truly outgive God. Like I said, if you're giving for the right reasons, the right motives, for God's glory, all of those factors... You can try to outgive God, but here's the bottom line. 
God is always more generous than you. You can try to play the generosity game. You will never outgive God. Try it. You'll never outgive God. Your measure of giving will be your measure of return. Notice it says with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. So when it comes to receiving blessings, do you want to receive blessings in a cup, in a barrel, or in an ocean? Your measure of container is the measure God will measure back to you. And I just think that's, that's a beautiful thing. And keep in mind, it's not just talking about material things, money. God blesses us in so many ways. And if we are generous with, because we realize who's the source of it all? God. Here's the easy saying, if anything good, if you got it, God gave it. Let's say that together. Anything good, if you got it, God gave it. So giving is just simply me, me giving back what God's already given me. And also, final application point, giving leads to overflow while stockpiling leads to selfishness. Notice it says, press down, shaking together and running over. So here's the imagery. If I'm generous and God, if he knows he can get it through me, he'll get it to me. If it's going to stay with me, it's going to become like the Dead Sea. It's going to grow stagnant. And God can say, you know what, they're not, they're not, you, they're not being a good steward, so I'm going, to stop, I'm going to stop the flow of blessing. But if you have open hands with everything, God's going to continue to flow through you. Amen? How many of you have ever heard the name George Mueller? George Mueller. Okay, some of you haven't. He's from the 1800s. He was born in Prussia in 1805. His father was a collector of taxes. And Mueller was interested in figures and... Things pertaining to that, pertaining to that. But when he became a Christ follower, everything changed. And one thing that fascinated him in the Bible was Jesus' recurring statements for us to ask. Verses like, ask and it will be given to you. He, he was fascinated by the word to ask. So I'm not saying we do what he did, but this is interesting what he did. He told his wife, we're going to do something interesting. We're going to take God at his word and we're going to see what he will do. So he did three things. And the ladies, tell me. Oh, just in your, in your mind, how you'd feel if your husband came up with a strategy. He said, we're going to give away all of our household goods. I can always feel, oh my goodness, we're going to give it all away. <laughs> the second thing he said is, um, I'm not going to take a salary from the small mission he was running. No salary. Give it all away. No salary. I can imagine his wife is, I don't, I don't know, it doesn't say his wife's response. And then he basically began this orphanage and care for the homeless kids in England. And he said, you know what? We're going to do it God's way. And God's asked us to give. So we're going to cover all this with prayer. Everything's going to be covered by prayer. So let me read you his rules. These are the guidelines he set up for his orphanage foundation. And these are mind-boggling even to this day. The first rule was no funds would ever be solicited. So can you imagine a missionary or a nonprofit not asking for money? How do you get money? He said, we're not going to ask for money. He said, we'd never go into debt. He said, money contributed for a specific purpose would only go to that purpose. That's good accounting. He said, we were going to be audited annually. He said, no ego pandering by the publication of donors' names. So in other words, if someone gives us money, we're not going to say who gave it. It's going to be in secret, like Jesus said. He said, no prominent names would be on the board to, to help advertise it, the institution. So he's like, I'm not going to go after big, famous names on the board. I'm going to Go after just humble servants. And he said the success of the orphanage is not measured by numbers. It's not by how many kids we have, but by God's blessings upon this orphanage. 
So those are, uh, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but if I was George Mueller or his wife, it would be a little nervous. Like, we're, we're giving away everything and we're not asking for money. So it's amazing that he built this first building, orphanage. And within six months later, he built a second orphanage. And let me fast forward to the end of his life. He had built five orphanages. He cared for over 10,000 orphans. He pastored the same church for 66 years. He never asked anyone for money and didn't take a salary for 68 years. And I'm not saying this is the model that we follow, but I'm saying that you can't outgive God. So when the Bible says give and it will be given to you, you can take Jesus at his word. He means what he says. And one more factor, this is interesting, for the 1800s. Um, they, George Mueller collected over $7.5 million. So I don't know what the modern-day equivalent of that is, but, and he didn't ask for a single dime of it. Can you imagine that? The fourth question, how do we see the world? Do you see light or darkness in the world around you? Do you see light or darkness in the world around you? Look at verse 39. And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? So if you are spiritually blind, are you going to see the world through light lens or through a dark lens? A dark lens, right? If Jesus, the light of the world, has given you light, it's going to change the way you view the world. So in other words, as Christ followers, we don't see the world just as it is, but as God wants it to be. We don't see people just as problems. We see people as potential followers of Christ. Everyone whom you lay your eyes on is someone for whom Christ died. So instead of seeing them all messed up, realize that they could be a candidate for a miracle. They could be a candidate for God's grace. So how do you see the world? When you turn on CNN, Fox, MSNBC, whatever news channel you watch... And it's so depressing. How do you see the world? Do you see it through the world's lens? Or do you see it through Jesus' lens? When in the end we're going to be with him. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. The kingdom of God is expanding. Uh, He wins. And he's winning. Even though it may seem like we're losing sometimes. That's the lens that we're to see the world through. Amen. But there's another application here. When he said, can the blind lead the blind? We've got to be careful who our leaders are. We've got to be careful who we allow to spiritually lead us. Because if they're in spiritual darkness, guess what? They're going to lead you in a ditch. So this is, this is a, a really a challenge to all of us. Be careful who you allow to lead you spiritually. You don't want someone in darkness. You want someone in light. And it doesn't mean that your leaders are perfect, but it does mean they're men and women of character who are following the Lord. Amen. So it brings up the question, well, what do I look for in a leader? Whether it be in a church, a Sunday school teacher, a pastor, um, you know, in a, in a business organization when I'm looking to invest, what do I look for? I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, Ron Edmondson, uh, he wrote an article, and I'm not going to go into depth, but he gives ten characteristics of what to look for in a good leader. The first one is recognize the value in other people. And continue to invest in them. Does the leader in your life, do they try to make themselves a hero or are they trying to make you a hero? Every good leader wants the followers to do better than himself or herself. Leaders are hero makers. Are you trying to make 
those around you better? Are you trying to make them go further? The second point Ron gives us, he shares information with those in the organization. Have you ever met a leader that kind of holds all the cards close to his or her chest? Doesn't really share a lot. How's that going to help anybody? Communication. People need communication and information. So a good leader will inform. Number three, has above average character. That goes without saying. There's no perfect people. But you want people of good character so that when things come up, you say, I believe in him, I believe in her. They use their influence for the good of others. They're skillful and competent. How many of you would like to have heart surgery and your doctor hasn't had any checkups in his practice in like 20 years? Would you want him or her operating on you? So all of your leaders need to be competent no matter what the field. They're not afraid for others to succeed even greater than their own success. God forbid that as leaders we'd ever be so insecure that we wouldn't want people to succeed beyond us. My prayer for you guys is that you will exceed all of our imaginations and expectations. I want you guys to flourish and to thrive. A, A good leader continues to learn. A good leader remains accessible, approachable, and accountable to others. And there's something about that. Um, One of the biggest lies that we believe, even as children, is the lie of autonomy. And I'll explain. Whenever you're a kid, did you ever say this or hear your grandkids saying this? I can't wait till I grow up, then I can do what I want to do. And then when you grow up and you get a job, you say to yourself, I can't wait till I get promoted because then I can do what I want to do. Throughout our whole lives, I can't wait till I retire. Because when I retire, then I can do what I want to do. See, here's the lie of autonomy. The lie of autonomy is we don't need others for accountability. We don't need others to encourage us, encounter us, and challenge us. But here's the thing. A leader is someone that's willing to be accountable. The reason why we're seeing many people in not just the business world, but the church world, heroes of the faith fall is if they get so high where there's no accountability, that's when the challenge comes in. Everybody needs accountability. Amen. And finally, visionary. A leader thinks beyond today. You know, a lot of times in church world, if I can just be honest with you, it's easy for pastor and staff to say, let's just get to Sunday. Let's just make it through Sunday. I think as a church, we should not just think about next Sunday, but we should think about next year. We should think about 10 years from now. We should think about 20 years from now. Because guess what? As long as the Lord tarries, we have people to reach. And life's the change of the gospel. Amen. Final question, and we're finished. Are you willing to walk in humility or haughtiness? Are you walking in humility or in haughtiness? Look at the next verse. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who's perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And I've got to be honest with this. Uh, I'm the kid in the class. When the teacher is teaching, I want to raise my hand and teach the teacher. Is anybody else like that? <laughs> so what Jesus is saying is, listen, you need to learn from the teacher. Stop trying to always teach the teacher. You know, the kid in the class, I, want, I know, I know. A, a disciple is not above his teacher. But if you're perfectly trained, you can be like your teacher. So what, what is Jesus saying? You have to have a spirit of humility. As long as you're talking, it's very hard to learn. But if you're listening, if you're asking questions, 
then you can learn. And he goes on to give us this very profound illustration. Someone has a log in his eye, this big beam hanging out of his eye. The problem is it's hard for me to even get close to look at the speck in your eye. So I asked the initial question that I didn't fully answer. Is it okay to judge others? What, what do we do when the Bible says judge not? Here's Jesus' answer to that very difficult question. It's okay to judge in such a way. In other words, I'm, I'm trying to help you with your issue as long as I've taken the beam out of my eye. So you don't, you don't go to others confronting them until you first examine your own heart. And doesn't Paul say in like manner where if someone's overtaken in a fault, it says consider yourself lest you also be tempted because you too may fall into the same trap. So Jesus tells us, There's nothing wrong with calling sin for what it is or trying to help people become better. But you don't need to have a critical spirit. You don't need to have a critical attitude. It's always done in a spirit of meekness and humility. I wrote in my notes, it's easy to become a Christian crank when I can't see because of my plank. When God removes the plank, I'm less of a crank because I know who to thank. So don't be a Christian crank with the plank. Allow God to remove that and take that away. One day, Billy Graham and his lovely bride, Ruth, were driving along a road. And it was filled with, you ever go down those roads where it's under construction? I was talking in the first service about I-95 in Florida. It seems like every time I go down, it's construction. One lane, you're stopping, you're afraid about these guardrails. But at the end of this construction, there was a sign that said, End of construction, thank you for your patience. And Ruth looked at Billy and said, you know, that would be very fitting for my tombstone. End of construction. Thank you for your patience. So we reviewed five heart-probing questions about how you see the world. We asked you, do you see the best or the worst in others? Are you loving or harsh toward others? Do others see you as generous or stingy? Do you see light or darkness in the world around you? Are you walking in humility or in haughtiness. And if you're like me, I was convicted on majority of the points, if not all of them. And the good thing is there's grace. What God does is he shows grace. And at Arden First Baptist, we don't believe in behavior modification. We don't believe in just trying to stop something and start something. We believe in heart transformation. So if God changes your heart, the behavior will follow. So in other words, if Jesus gets a hold of my heart... I'm going to begin to see the best in others. I'm going to be less harsh and more loving. I'm going to be more generous and less stingy. I'm going to see the best in people. I'm going to see light. And instead of walking in haughtiness, I'm going to realize anything good, guess who gave it? It's from God. So why would I take pride in something that's God-giving? I'm going to walk in humility. So to summarize this in a sentence, your take-home truth, what you see is what you are. What you see is what you are. How you see the world says more about you than the world. If you see the world as depressing, dark, bleak, oh no, what's going to happen? Maybe you should ask Jesus to give you a new lens, a new vision, to see the world as he sees the world. Let us pray. Father, I know this is convicting. And even to my own soul, it's troubling how far I am from, from seeing the best in others. How far I am from loving as I should. How far I am from being generous at all times. To seeing light 
in the world instead of just darkness. How far I am from walking in humility instead of haughtiness. So Lord, I'm sorry for myself and I pray you forgive me. And Father, I pray as I'm praying that all the believers, right where you're sitting, let your seat be your sanctuary, to say, Jesus, I, I need your grace. I need a new heart. I need a new vision so I can see the world as you see it. So as the believers continue to pray with no one looking around, would there be here, one here today that say, Timothy, you know, I, I've never seen the world like what you're talking about. And I realize today it's partly because I've never had a new heart. Whenever you ask Jesus into your life, he gives you a new heart. and You've never received that new heart. If that's you and you're willing to make Jesus your Lord and Savior, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but right where you're sitting, to say, Jesus, I need a new heart. I realize that I am sinful beyond what I even realize. I'm sorry. Forgive me of my sins. I turn from them and I turn to you. And now invite Jesus into your life. Jesus, come into my life. I make you my Lord and my Savior. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, we want to welcome you to the family of God. Father, you see the hearts of the believers and those who are seeking out to you. Help us to see the world differently. Because we see the world as we are. Help us to see the world as you are and as you see the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen. This time we're going to